Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. The time when he was at the prisoner of war camp as a Soviet soldier, he was a Soviet soldier and he got captured by the Germans after the Germans attacked the Soviet Union in June of 1941. And he, all the Jews were being killed. The Jewish soldiers were being killed. And they were asked to step forward and they were going to be taken and shot. And this other man who was not a Jewish man, but a friend of his grabbed onto his arm and said, don't go. And he said, I can't, I want it to be over. I want to end this now with a bullet. And the guy just said no. And he held him back and he gave him, he took, pulled a sugar cube out of his pocket and he put it in his mouth. And somehow his love and support and physical, emotional, and that sugar cube made it so Sam didn't go and he stayed and he ended up escaping from that camp and surviving that. I'm Srini Rao and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Karen, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I found out uh, about you by way of your publicist who told me you wrote a book about Holocaust survivors. And that was a subject I had always been intrigued by. Uh, first, when I initially you know, read the pitch, I realized I hadn't read it because I thought you yourself were a Holocaust survivor. And I was thinking to myself, oh, wait a minute. And then I read the book and I realized that your in-laws were. But before we get into all of that, um, I want to start asking, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping and influencing the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? Um, my father was a, an attorney, tax and business attorney here in Seattle, which is where I live, and um, very, very involved in both the civic world, volunteer volunteer civic world in Seattle, as well as in the Jewish community here in Seattle. Um, my mom was primarily a, a stay-at-home mom, but managed uh, some real estate that they, that they purchased along the way and was a really good... Uh, real estate manager as she, as she, as she, as she grew into that role. But, uh, from my perspective, she was the, the mother par excellence and the community activist par excellence. So I had two parents who were very energetic and active, both in their professional world and as well as in their, in their volunteer and communal, communal lives. So I had quite wonderful role models 
from that perspective. Yeah. But I mean, how did that influence your choices that you made throughout your life and, and in terms of, you know, career choices and in the direction that you took? Yeah, I think I think deciding to be a lawyer, going to law school and being a lawyer was definitely a, re- um, a reaction to my father's uh, profession and how much he enjoyed his his work and how much he was able to honestly use his work to not only take care of his family and find interesting, challenging things to do with his life and his, you know, his professional life, but it was also an entree for him and, uh, into, into the world of, of civics and into the world of communal activism. And that was something that really affected me in my life because as a lawyer, I also got involved in communal activism, both in our, in our own Washington state bar association, for example, I was the president of our, I was an elder law attorney. So the elder law section and and other sort of civic civic things, and then in the Jewish community, I've been extremely active as on many boards, many many things. Currently, I'm the president of our synagogue, and just throughout my life, I've been very 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 active. And I think that deciding to be a, an attorney gets you into the lives of the people that you're working with and and the community that you live in in a way that's unique and rewarding. And so, uh, and then as far as this choice I made some years ago to, to leave my law practice and, and research and write the book about my in-laws, that was something that, um, it was after my dad died that I made that decision to do that. And I heard his voice, had a conversation with him in my head about whether I should do this. Like, is this crazy? Like, what am I doing? And, and I heard him telling me that, like, you're not going to live forever believe me, I'm, I'm gone. So if it's something that you've wanted to do for a long time and that you see your chance to do it, then this is your time and you should just do it. So, so that in that way, I think that my parents' choices in life and role models that they provided both professionally and, and communally really affected me and my professional choices and personal choices. You're one of the few lawyers I've ever talked to who has told me about how much you love your job at Advice. Because I feel like more than anybody I ever meet, uh, lawyers seem to hate their jobs more than anybody. Because I feel like so many people end up uh, going to law school because they don't know what to do with their lives. But I'm curious if you had sort of the, the typical Jewish parents, because like as an Indian person, you know, they put these career paths in front of you, doctor, lawyer, engineer. And every Jewish person I've talked to on this show has said something very similar. I think it was Daniel Levitin who said that... Uh, Somebody, you know, there's a joke. Some, uh, you know, Jewish grandmother was watching an inaugural address, and there's a vice president on stage, and she turns to the person sitting next to her and says, "You know, there's my son. He could have been a doctor." <laughs> there's so many variations of that joke. <laughs> there are so there's another variation of that joke that goes like this: the Jewish mother's son becomes president of the United States, and she's at the inauguration, and someone's sitting next to her and says, "Aren't you so proud?" of your son. Look, he's a president of the United States. And the mother says, looks at her with disappointment and said, he could have been a doctor. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I mean, I, I'm wondering, you know, your parents, you know, your dad being a lawyer, did you ever get any of, of the sort of pressure to say, you know, this is, is what we think you should do? Um, or did they give you sort of the freedom to explore whatever you wanted to do? Oh, total freedom to explore what I wanted to do originally. So after college, I went to college in New York at Barnard College, and I majored in political science. And I was very intensely interested in policy creation and and research and creation of policy. So I went to work in D.C. for a senator, um, the senator from Washington State at the time. And 
I was a legislative assistant and I was like, I'm going to be a politician. I'm going to be a senator. This is what I want to do. And then, um, so like that was, I, I saw that when I was 22 years old as my, as my future. And then I worked on a, on a, on his political campaign when he was running for reelection. And I was like, uh, no, this is not what I want to do. So uh, that this was horrible. I really did not like working on the campaign. It was, it was terrible. And, uh, I was like, this is not going to be my life. And I was already in law school at the time. And I went to law school in part to further a political career. But then I was like, oh, I'm in law school. I could be a lawyer. So I started to, to explore the options that I would have as a lawyer. I had two different careers really as a lawyer. One career was at a big law firm in Seattle, right out of law school. Um, and then I took 10 years off because, uh, my oldest, my oldest child got, uh, got sick with leukemia and, and that sort of shook up our family and, and, uh, my, my career plans. And, um, so I, someone had to stay home with her. She was in treatment for two and a half years. She's fine. She's now an adult with twin babies and doing great, but it was a very intense time for our family. So after that was, after she was really better from that, I decided to give myself some time to just enjoy my children. And so, but then what, and so when I went back, when I decided to reenter the, the, the working world, I really was open to what that would look like for me. And I decided to go into an elder law practice. And I did that in part because I wanted to be very involved with people's lives and families' lives in, in a positive way. And so I think that making the choice to do that um, as kind of a second legal career, I was doing business practice in my first, in my first career, which is much drier and less interesting. But this was really interesting because it's really, it's like a soap opera every day. And every day I went home feeling like I helped somebody today. I really have made a difference in someone's life. And that was, yeah, that to me, that's like, wow, that's, that's a big deal. And I, I, I loved it. So I did that for about 14 years until I left to, again, to, to write the book. Yeah. Well, I mean, as, as somebody who's spent time in politics, this is something I am always curious about when I talk to people who have you know, worked in uh, politics or worked with in government. I, you know, I think sometimes as a citizen, I feel like people in politics do not act in the interest of citizens and often they're just furthering their own interest. But then again, that's completely biased because I'm saying that from the outside. So I recognize that bias. What do you think that those of us who, you know, sort of consume media, you know, read about this stuff on the news, misunderstand about the reality versus, you know, what we think about what people are dealing with in politics. I think that, I think that being an outsider now, obviously now I was, I worked in politics for three years back in 1988, right? No, 1983 to 85 to 86, around that time. It was the Reagan era, mind you. And um, politics was still politics, uh, but I worked for a very, a very honest politician and a very good man. Slade Gorton was his name, senator from Washington State. And he, um, he taught me that, that the most important thing is to be, like I had to create assessments about legislation that was coming through. My job was to follow certain areas of, 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 of legislation, health policy and, and entitlement policies and things like that. And, um, to educate him, cause this was not areas that he was in, in, on his committees and, and, and tell him about legislation that was coming up and what my opinion was about it, whether he should vote yes or no on specific legislation. So it was very intense 
work to do. And I feel like I did my job from a policy perspective and from knowing his perspective, which was a moderate Republican. And I feel though that like since that time, there's no more Slade Gortons left. Like there's just no more, just these honest, moderate, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, it just feels so much more polarized now and so much more self-interested and, and crazy, honestly, like just the, the conspiracy theories and all that, like that just, I mean, I guess Ronald Reagan had, you know, he did the whole Star Wars defense thing, but <laughs> that money he threw into the defense department actually led to the internet. So like, who, you know, who knows what, what, what crazy things can, can lead to, but it wasn't a, cons- even Ronald Reagan's like Star Wars idea wasn't, wasn't a conspiracy theory. It was an idea to be able to shoot down rockets before they arrive from mostly from the Soviet Union. And now, of course, you have like in Israel, the Iron Dome, where actually they shoot down rockets before they arrive. So I don't know, you know, I wasn't a great fan of Ronald Reagan at the time, but there are some things that he did that were that that worked out pretty well. So I do think that things have changed, in my opinion, as a, as a, as a just as a layperson watching it. I think that politics has changed for the worse. And I think we're all yeah. in a big, big fat mess, to be honest. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, 
you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, just as I watched sort of policy being made during, you know, this whole COVID crisis, so like these people are making policies that they're completely unaffected by. You know, how, like a, a treasury secretary whose net worth is $300 million is making policies on how to address poor people. Yeah, it makes no sense. Um, well, so you mentioned uh, dealing with, you know, having a, a child with leukemia. And I'm wondering, as a mother, I mean, as a parent, how do you navigate the emotional journey of something so challenging? And, and what are the life lessons that you took from that? And what decisions did you make about how you would live your life going forward based on that experience? Having a child who's who has an illness that could kill her is a very, a very awakening moment um, for anyone. Certainly was for me and my, and my husband, I'm married disclosure. I'm married to an adult hematologist oncologist. So someone who deals with cancer and blood problems on a daily basis. Um, but he was not a pediatric, you know, doctor. So, and he also did not try to, to, to control his own daughter's uh, medical medical decisions, although he had, he had much to say about it, but, um, in the, in the time that it was all happening, I feel like I got through it because I had a lot of support from family and friends. And of course, my husband and I were extremely supportive of one another and helped each other and our daughter and our, we had a, so, so, so when I, when, when our daughter who was, um, was four years old, when she was uh, diagnosed with this leukemia, I was eight months pregnant at the time. We had a two-year-old toddler and I was about to have, we were about to have a third child. So life was, uh, was crazy. And um, I think that the way that I got through it was to focus on what I needed to do at the time, at any given moment, what I needed to do. So I needed a lot of help with my other kids because I really, my, my sick daughter needed a lot of attention. And we had to go to the hospital every day and we had to, you know, there was just, there was just a lot going on and had, she had a Hickman catheter that had to be cleaned every day and you had to, anyway, it was a whole spiel. So I, I think the way that I got through with it, through it, through it, which I think is not atypical, which is ta- being task oriented, do what you need to do to help this child or that child or do whatever each day. But one of the things that I focused on was a desire I, I, w- I was going on the assumption that my daughter was going to survive this, which thank God was true. And I wanted her to be the least amount of affected emotionally and psychologically from the trauma of being, being ill as possible. So what I 
tried to do, and of course I engaged my two-year-old as well. My baby just was an appendage. She just went with me everywhere, basically, because she was, I was nursing her. Um, but she was a great, great baby. She's still a great kid. She's, she's a great person. But as a baby, she was super easy and lovely. Uh, but one of the things I tried to do was make it fun. Like I, that sounds, that sounds strange to say that, you know, chemotherapy treatment is going to be fun. But I tried my best to like make every time we went to the doctor's office something that was exciting and fun. Even if there was going to be some pain involved, like a shot or whatever, you know what I mean? Like whatever it was. And, um, but after we did this fun games and then also on the way back, we would always stop for ice cream. So her association with going to the doctor when she was four years old was ice cream as opposed to shots. And, um, so my goal really was, and I tried to give her as much of a normal life as possible. Like she went to camp in that, that first summer when that was a crazy thing to do because and it was a crazy thing to do, but we did it and we did it with great, some great support from the camp. And also I just went every day to make sure everything was okay. But yeah, I just tried to make her life as normal as possible when it could be and, and as fun as possible. And I think that, um, she's a really fun adult. So, and she doesn't, she isn't terribly traumatized by her, by her childhood illness. At least it doesn't seem that she is. So, I mean, it was a thing, but she's not traumatized by it. So that was, I think we succeeded. And she survived. So those are all really great things. Yeah. Well, so one thing I wonder about your husband being a doctor, my, my sister is a doctor. Um, I had two really good friends from college who both lost a baby and was a, mm. a second child. And they're both doctors. And so I wonder, you know, and I, I couldn't help but think, yeah, but you're still human. And in these moments, you're actually not doctors. You're thinking of this situation from the lens of being a parent. And I wonder if that was the experience for your husband as well, like separating the sort of, you know, I'm a medical doctor who knows what my daughter is dealing with, but I'm also a father. Right. So we were really blessed with a phenomenal hematologist, pediatric hematologist at Children's Hospital here in Seattle. Um, his name, shout out, Bob Andrews. Um, He's also associated here with the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. And I think having someone as expert and incredibly knowledgeable in the research that was current at the time um, for what was going on with pediatric leukemia. Um, so my husband had someone that he could talk to in their own language that was like an elevated conversation on the high, it was the highest level conversation he could ask for, for that moment. So he could ask all of his questions that were not questions that I could really fully understand. Um, but he could ask all his questions and get them answered really well. So once he could get his answer questions answered in a way that he understood it and could place it into his knowledge base, then I think that freed him to be the parent. You know what I mean? He didn't have to be the doctor because someone else was doing that really well. So yeah. he could just be the parent and he was, um, it was very convenient that he was also a doctor though. It saved, actually it saved our daughter ended up, um, a number of hospital stays because they like a couple of times she needed like antibiotics cause she got a, a different infections and that kind of thing. And we'd go to the, we'd go to the emergency room and have it all evaluated. And yes, she has bacterial infection and da 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 da. da. And he's like, okay, listen, just prescribe all the IV antibiotics we need, I will monitor them at home. And so we were able to stay home and he became the nurse at home to do the IV antibiotics and stuff like that. And they just trusted him that, I don't know if they do that anymore, honestly, but 
in mm-hmm. at that time he convinced them that he could handle this at, at home, and so she didn't have to sleep in the hospital for for like you know would probably would have been four or five nights a couple different times. So he played doctor in in that way, uh, but mostly he was freed to be to be the dad and and be the one who together with me, uh, tried to make sure that she had what she needed at, at home. Hmm. Well, let's, let's get into the book, but I, I, you know, before we get into the actual content of the book, uh, you said something earlier, uh, you said that, you know, part of what prompted your, uh, desire to write this book was the fact that your dad passed away. And this is something I've always wondered. Why is it that you think it takes sort of such dramatic experiences or losses uh, before people, you know, take action on something they've always wanted to do. I think it's, I think it's the way we're wired. I think it's the way human brain is, is wired that, um, we live our lives. So I'm 60 years old right now. So when I, uh, my dad died eight years ago, so I was like 52. Right. So, um, I think that we live our lives and most of the time, until something intense happens, like your child has a life-threatening disease or a parent dies or someone very, very close to you dies, it, it doesn't, it does, it's not even the same. Like when my in-laws died, I was very, very sad. I'm very affected by that, but it did not shake up my life in the way that when my dad died. Um, it, and I, 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 don't, I know that I'm not, I'm not atypical in this. Was, if someone has a, a close relationship with a parent, that when they die it really, really goes to the core of your being. And that it just, I, I don't exactly know why. I think that it's just that we're so tied biologically and emotionally to our parents that when one dies, thank God my mom, my mom is still alive. Um, when one dies, you just confront that death. It's not just that person's death. You confront your own death because a little piece of you dies along with that person. But also you're like, you know, I thought that, you know, I think for some of us anyway, we have this complete fantasy that our parents are going to always be there because they've always been there. They've been the rocks, at least for me. They're both the rocks in my life always and supportive and there and for, for every, every turn of the, of the, of the, of the road, they've been, they've been with me in the most positive way. And then all of a sudden that's, that's gone. It's gone from this world. And um, it, yeah, it really, I think it's, I don't think it's unusual that that really, I know other people who's lost, lost a parent with whom they were close and it just shakes up your entire world and you really do have to face your own mortality because, um, you're next really, you know, your parents are dot are going, who's next you, you're it. So, um, if there's something left you want to do, you better do it. And so that, that I, I think that I don't, I think it's the way our brains are wired and, um, biolog- I think it's a combination of biology and, and neurology. And um, it's a very, very intense, intense reaction that we have when we lose a parent with whom we're close. You know, I had uh, Frank Ostaseski here, who is the director of the Zen Hospice Project. And I, I remember telling him, you know, I wondered about sort of my parents not being there. I think my two great fears in life, like these are literally my two biggest fears as though my parents, one or both of my parents wouldn't be there to see me get married or have kids. Uh, And, you know, I'm 40 something. And what he said to me really always stayed with me. He said, don't wait for those big moments in your life. He said, spend time with them now. And uh, I remember right after that, I started going home for dinner every Sunday. I mean, I don't live in California anymore, but that really, really struck me. 
One thing that I wonder about is people, you know, die obviously of old age or multiple causes. Do you think there's any difference when you know it's going to happen or you're kind of prepared for it versus it being the result of, of, you know, something traumatic, unexpected? I don't know. Um, I don't know. I think when, when someone dies unexpectedly, it's, it's a, it's a shock. You have to first, I think, I think the stages of grief are, um, are jolted into that, that shock moment. Um, my dad died at age 79. He, he was, he died like two weeks after he was diagnosed, like with a terrible liver thing. So it, it wasn't like a shock, like dead to, you know, in an instant, it, but it was, uh, it was pretty quick, but you know, as, as ways to go out of the world, it was pretty darn, pretty darn good. So for him, you know, it was, it was a, it was a lovely exit. Um, but so I don't really know. Cause I haven't had, I haven't had that. Like I, I have a, I heard a really terrible story over the weekend of a young man, 22 years old, who's the grandson of someone that I know here in Seattle, who's in Chicago. Um, he's at university of Chicago and he was working somewhere and he was on his way home from work on the subway at six o'clock in the evening. And he got shot by a stray bullet in Chicago. Wasn't intended for him. It was a stray bullet, got shot sitting in the subway and now he's dead. And when I think about that, that's someone's child and someone's grandchild at 22 years old. That's, that's awful. That's really, really awful. So like, what does that feel like to someone who's close with him? That's, I can't compare that to like my losing my father at 79 in a, and as a lovely exit from the, from the world. Um, each, each situation is its own. And I think that I wouldn't want to be comparing people's shock and grief to, to their, the loss of someone. Yeah. I think it might've been my, my roommate's mother who said, you don't ever get over it. Like she said, there's not a day that goes by that you don't think about a parent that you've lost. Well, I think there are some days that go by that I don't think about my dad, but that's certainly not a week, not probably not probably every other day. I see my mom a lot. And so my mom, the memory of my dad is of course tied up with my mom. So, um, yeah, we, we try to talk about my dad some, I try to make sure that his memory stays alive for her and, um, that his presence is still sort of in her life in that way. But the memories I have now, he's been gone for eight years. It's a different feeling. It's not for a while. I was just really mad at him for leaving. And, and now it's more, uh, just this love that fills me when I, when I think of him and that warmth, that, that feeling that he always gave me when he would hug me, just that feeling of warm, warm love and unconditional support. And so I draw on that. I bring it up, even though he's not here physically, I bring it and I, I feel his hug, uh, around me. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, speaking of, of keeping memories alive, I think that that makes uh, a perfect segue into actually talking about the book itself. Uh, outside of that, you know, what was your reason for wanting to explore this subject in particular as somebody who was going to write a book? Yeah, it's interesting. It's the other way around. Uh, I wasn't someone who had a dream of writing a book. I was someone of had a, who had a dream of getting Sam and Esther Goldberg's story into the world. And the vehicle that I used was was writing a book. Um, I've no, I knew them, you know, since I joined the family, which was 1984. And, um, as I got to know their story and got to know and, and love them, I was like, you know, you know, honestly, both stories are really, really important stories in the lexicon of Holocaust literature. Um, but I felt extremely strongly about my, my father-in-law, Sam's being one of 60 people to survive Treblinka. Uh, out of, you know, nearly a million people that were murdered there and his involvement with a very small group of, of men who planned and executed the uprising there. And I feel like that is so Im historically important that when he were, when he dies, which, you know, he, he died that he'll be, he's lost to history because that's not something he did do an interview with, with the Shoah foundation. Um, but it's in Yiddish. So, and there's no transcript in English. So it's going to really be lost to history. And that was something that was 
uh, that was just like personally really upsetting because his story is so important for the historical record and the view of what happened at Treblinka and how it happened and just how regular people like Sam Goldberg were part of making making something come true and making something real that that would that was very unusual in the Holocaust to have there were very few uprisings at death camps and concentration camps. There were a few, there were a number, but mostly not. So, um, and then as I delved more into my mother-in-law's story, I realized that of the three, you know, 3 million Polish Jews that were murdered during the war, um, that only about 50,000 Polish Jews who tried to hide, and a lot of them tried to hide from being rounded up, from being shot, from being the different, all the different ways that the, that the Germans tried to kill the Jews, um, only about 50,000 survived till the end of the war. And my mother-in-law was one of those. My father-in-law jo- joined her, of course, in hiding, but she hid for two years. And the things that happened to her, which I, you know, I, I, I talk about in the book, there were so many things that, that we didn't know about before. And especially things like there was this, you know, there was this big family secret about the first husband and what exactly what happened to him. No one really knew. And then the, the, her having that baby it, while she was in hiding was, was just the, the biggest secret. Nobody knew what happened at all. There was some rumor that there had been a baby, but it, my mother-in-law would never talk about it. She, she refused to talk about it. So um, it was too hard. So I think that having their, it became for me more of a, of a mission to put their story out into the world. Even though I know there's so many Holocaust memoirs and so many amazing and important Holocaust stories, um, I wanted this one to be part of it, to be part of that mass of, of information that will carry on into the future. Yeah. You know, there are numerous questions that, that come from this. Uh, one, you know, from your father-in-law, what did he teach you about the kind of resilience it takes to you know, survive a situation like that? Because when I just hear you describe that, it, it puts so many of our own problems that we bitch about. Like, it's like, oh, the internet isn't fast enough. It's like, seriously, like, these are the things that we're complaining about. And, you know, you hear a story like that, you think, oh, God, what am I, you know, complaining about? But what did you, did he teach you about resilience uh, to the kind of resilience that's necessary to get through that sort of an experience? Uh, let's start there. There's a, there's a follow up to that as well that I have. Um, I think resilience is a tough word to use when it comes to Holocaust survival, and the reason um, it's just too soft of a word. It sounds like it's something that it's just too soft of a word. I never really like that word when people talk about it in the context of the Holocaust, because if you ask. When, you, when Holocaust survivors were asked, including my father-in-law and my mother-in-law, like, what got you through that? How did you manage? How did you survive? They look at you like, like you're out of your mind. Like, I don't know. I just put one foot in front of the other and tried to live to the next hour, basically. And um, there were many, many times where I didn't want to continue to live. I wanted to end my life. I wanted it to be over. But someone, someone helped me. Someone held me up at that one moment. Someone, the support, there were times when my father-in-law wanted to, wanted to end it, is how, is how he would put it. I wanted to end it all. And um, each time as he tells those different stories, there was someone else there, like the story at the time when he was at the prisoner of war camp 
as a Soviet soldier. He was a Soviet soldier and he got captured by the Germans after the Germans attacked the Soviet Union in June of 1941. And he, all the Jews were being killed. The Jewish soldiers were being killed and they were asked to step forward and they were going to be taken and shot. And this other man who was not a Jewish man, but a friend of his grabbed onto his arm and said, don't go. And he said, I can't, I want it to be over. I want to end this now with a bullet. And the guy just said no. And he held him back and he gave him, took a, pulled a sugar cube out of his pocket and he put it in his mouth. And somehow his love and support and physical, emotional, and that sugar cube made it so Sam didn't go and he stayed and he ended up escaping from that camp and surviving that. Um, or like when my mother-in-law, she wanted to kill herself when, after her husband died and there she was pregnant in alone hiding in the woods, like with her teenage brother-in-law. And she was like, I, I don't want to go on. I'm just going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to kill myself here. But it was the support of this, of Helena Stish, really the, the non-Jewish woman who helped, helped her and them so intensely during that time. Um, she said, you can't, you don't know what is in store for you. You don't know why you're still alive. You can't, you can't do that. We'll help you. We're here with you. And that supported her through that moment. So the resilience is one in which when I see the moments where they really just wanted to kill themselves, like the ultimate, the ultimate of sort of depression and depths of hor horribleness, um, it was through the support of others that they made it through those moments. And that to me is very powerful with how we live our lives today, because you can't live by yourself. You need the support of others. And mind you, most of us are lucky enough not to be in those particular type of really terrible life or death situations, but we can find ourselves oftentimes in situations where we want to end it all. We don't want to go on living for whatever reason. And it's when someone else can, can hold you up. Someone else can step in and say, I love you. I'm here for you. I want you to carry on that that can give another person strength to keep going. And I think that that's a really important piece for all of us to learn a lesson from. Um, but in terms of even when it wasn't like, I want to end my life right now, it just was, how do I get through the day? I think that my father-in-law um, has through his actions and through what I knew of him, he taught me as a role model to be kind and open-hearted to every single person. And when you are kind and open-hearted to others, that in fact gives you the strength to carry on. Whether or not people reciprocate in that, they do. They ultimately do. Like he was supposed to be hung, hung up in, and, 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 uh, and hung on a gallows in Treblinka because he, he hit a capo, a Jewish supervisor. But the women in the, in the, in the, in the laundry that he was working with, he was the supervisor of the laundry. They stepped forward and said, you can't kill, you can't kill him. You can't, if you're going to kill him, kill all of us. It was like 30 women. And the, the Nazi officer was like, why? And they're like, we're standing up for this guy. He didn't do what that guy's saying he did. He's lying. Shmoka was his Yiddish name. Sam is an hardworking, upstanding, fine person. And we won't, we won't take, we won't stand for that. And so that he didn't get killed because those women stood up for him. And it was because he was kind to them and took care of them. And they loved him for that. So I think if you live your life 
as someone who is kind and open and generous of spirit, that that helps you live to the next moment, to the next day, to move on in the hard times. And lo and behold, it helps you because other people want to come and help you in your time of need. So I think that's what he taught me on the two sort of really big, big, big moment lessons. So you alluded uh, earlier to the fact that your, your mother-in-law never wanted to talk about, uh, you know, the baby or some of this other stuff. But the other thing I wonder is, in general, you're talking about an incredibly traumatizing experience with people who probably have absolutely no desire to relive it, even if it means telling a story about it. And so I wonder, when you're dealing with such a delicate subject matter, how do you actually keep the you know, interests of the people that you are telling the story about in mind, uh, you know, without causing them harm, without, you know, sort of having them be traumatized all over again? Well, I guess I had the benefit, um, sad, that's not a really good word. I had the situation that I was in and a challenge of writing this book after they had already passed on. They were dead, Sam and Esther. Um, So I couldn't ask them a lot of my questions. And I also couldn't have them tell me that I couldn't do it because I just don't think Esther, I don't think she would have said yes to this. Sam, I think would have said yes. So I mean, I could have written a book just about Sam, but I don't know. You can't, if you've already read the book, you know, you just can't write it just about Sam. It's impossible because his story becomes merged with her story in, in the, in this incredible moment um, after the Treblinka uprising, when he escapes, that's when he meets her and they become a team. So I think the whole project probably would have gotten quashed if I had asked permission of them to write it because Esther would not have wanted me to write about her, what happened to her with her first husband, with the baby, with a lot of things that happened. She wouldn't have wanted out into the world. She didn't even want it in her family. So yeah. Uh, So do I think that Esther's up in heaven angry at me? Yeah, I probably, she probably is. (laughs) Do I think Sam's? clapping and cheering. Yeah, I do. So 50, 50, that's pretty good, pretty good. So, but, but I think if you are telling the story, you have to be cognizant of the people who are alive, which is the three, the three children who are alive and well, um, Shlomo, my husband, um, also known as Sheldon. Um, but I call him Shlomo, uh, and his two sisters, Molly and Faye. And before I started the project, I went to both all of them. Well, first I talked to my husband about it and cause that was key. And he was supportive. And then I went to my sister's-in-law and asked if they felt comfortable with me with me doing this. And they both said, yes, I could do it. Um, do I think they were pre- fully comfortable with the result of what I published? Not so sure. But, <laughs> but once they gave me the okay, then I would, I did, I did send them the, the entire transcript before it went to final, uh, like final editing and stuff like that. I wanted them to have the opportunity to read it and give me feedback and say, please don't say this or please say this differently or can we change, you know, any, I was really open to what they needed from, from my transcript to make it comfortable for them. But um, neither of them offered any changes at the time. So I, I went forward. That was it. I gave them like a month and that was that. <laughs> so this is a, a question uh, out of, of morbid curiosity. How did you actually do all the research if your, your in-laws had passed? Was it through your husband and, and his two sisters or how did you find out? So like, because that, that was one thing I noticed is that there was a lot of detail. Yes. Yeah, so the place I started was with Sam's interview. 
Sam had two interviews, like I mentioned. One was with the Shoah Foundation, which was a very extensive and good interview. And another one that my husband had done of him just like on video. They were both in Yiddish, but but we had already translated them into English. So I had the English transcript for that. And my mother-in-law did sit down one time with my sister-in-law, Molly, and Molly taped her and she spoke in English and told some of her story. Now, now that I, after I did the research and found out, you know, more, more details, I realized that she, she fudged a lot of stuff because she just didn't want to, she didn't want to talk about her first husband. She didn't talk, want to talk about the baby. She didn't want to talk about any of that. So she, she talked around it. So um, anyway, so I started out by just doing, um, I mean, before this, I was a generally knowledgeable human being when it comes to like Holocaust stuff, but um, I became uh, an expert in what, what much more of an expert in Holocaust World War II history. So I first started with the big picture history because I wanted to put their story in the context of the historical event called World War II. And um, so first I had to do that. And then I created a timeline that was involved both what happened during the war, like outside of anything Jewish, just the war itself, and I, and then Holocaust-related stuff, and then their story and how that fit into the timeline so that I could tell the story properly. And, and then I just started interviewing different people who were alive at the time. Who, I found someone, a number of miracles had happened. I found someone who lived in my mother-in-law's town when he was a little boy before the war, and he gave me a lot of time to talk about what the town was like and and he, in fact, was a student at at my uh, at my husband's grandfather's my so my mother in law's father's cheder, uh, which is the school that he taught. So it was great because he had been in the house and he down the street. He knew he knew Reb Shlaim Zalman. It was amazing. So that was great. I just started interviewing as many people as I could, and then I went to Poland and through a whole series of of through the letters that my sister in law found in Polish left in her father's apartment when he died. He was the second to die. I through them, through a friend of mine now who's a friend of mine, who translated the letters into English for me, we were able to locate the the three surviving children of the two two Stish families, Stish is their last name, that helped Sam and Esther and then Sam when he joined, hiding for those two years and two years in the in the Polish forest. And um there were three of them. They were kids in the day, but when we met them, they were in their eighties and one woman was ninety. And that was going there personally, meeting them and seeing the barn that they hid in and even the pit that they lived in, that they dug where they lived for almost a year. I couldn't believe that the pit was still there. We, none of us could believe it. I ended up going with my husband and four children, plus a son-in-law. And we talked with them for a long time. And then afterwards, they walked us out into the forest and said, well, this is the pit that your parents dug and lived in for a year. And that was a moment in time that that was talk about life-changing moments. That was one that I can point to in my life and say, I changed as a human being when I stared into that pit and realized that Sam and Esther, these beloved human beings lived in this hole in the ground for a year. I was like, wow, I have a house. I have a bed. I've got food and clothes. I will try my best not to take anything in my life for granted again, because how can we take anything we have for granted when you see the people that you loved had nothing, nothing. They lived like animals in a hole in the ground, like a rabbit, you know, uh, it was really, 
life-changing for me to do that. So to go back to Poland and see things on the ground myself allowed me to then, I, I hope anyway, describe and tell their story with more, more detail and more color. But it also created a whole new story, which was my story and the, the life-changing experience that I had as I, as I moved through this, this time in my life. So towards the end of the book, uh, or actually kind of almost as the epilogue, you included perspectives from the younger generation. And I, I get the sense that that was a very deliberate choice. And I, I kind of wanted to ask you about, you know, what was the you know, reasoning for that? Yeah, it was a very deliberate choice. First of all, the epilogue was written by Shlomo because I wanted his voice, his own right. voice to be somewhere in the book instead of me just like quoting him and kibitzing about him in the, <laughs> in my section. Um, I wanted him to put himself into it. And so he wrote that piece, which I was really happy with. Um, but the trip that we took to Poland, which like I mentioned, all of our four adult children came along and our one son-in-law, Micha, um, it was not only, uh, you know, you might imagine a family bonding experience, which it was very much so, um, but it was also life-changing for each of them. And we really hadn't, we all, we all don't live in the same, in the same city. We live different places and we really ha didn't get a chance to have like a family meeting afterwards because everybody could come for a certain number of days. So like everybody was there for the really intense part in, in Poland where we did all the work on salmon esters, retracing their, their story basically. But some kids left. At right after one kid left two days, we didn't have all of us together to sort of debrief and talk about how we felt and what that, what, what that felt like for us. And so in part, I just wanted to hear their, their feelings and perspective in a moving and meaningful way. And I wanted that, I wanted their story, their, what this meant to them to be part of my story. Cause honestly, they are a big part of my life story. I, I, I gave birth to four children and raised them and launched them off into the world as, as, as adults. And I wanted those part of my parenting style since the beginning of having children some 33 years ago, um, has really always been, if there's stuff that I'm doing, I'm going to figure out a way that I'm, that I'm excited about. I'm going to figure out a way to get my kids involved in it. And in part it was selfish. Cause like there's certain, certain things that I like to do that, if I don't get my kids liking it, then I'm not going to get to do it. It's like, like, let's say um, snow skiing or water skiing or like biking or things like that. Like I got to get them good at those things so they can do those things with me. Um, and this is a little bit like that. Like I wanted, this was, a, this was a project that was really important to me and I wanted them to be part of it. And I wanted them to be not part of it, to want them to be part of it physically when we were there. But I also wanted them to be part of it in the writing and, and what will carry on. Like, you know, may they all, may, may we all live to 120, as we say in the Jewish tradition, um, but they're not going to live forever either. And, you know, when their great grandchildren, their great grandchildren, let's say, pick up this book, which will still be in existence, um, when they pick it up off the shelf and they read it, they'll read their great, great, great grandmother's words and their, the story of their whatever, great, you know, great, 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 great grandparents. But then they're going to hear the voice of their own, let's say, grandmother or, whatever the relationship is. I want them to hear those voices and I want that to be able to people, for them to, that to resonate with them. And I also think that showing 
I've gotten a lot of comments from people who've read the book about that that was one of the most inspiring parts of the book, reading what my kids had to say. Because what is, how are we telling the story of the Holocaust to the future generations? How is it going to be meaningful? It's not personal it, it, for, for people, not grandchildren, for grandchildren, it's personal. But for a lot of people in now we're, you know, 80 years past, it's history. It's not a personal story anymore. So what is, how are we going to tell these stories going, going forward? I think we're going to tell the stories going forward by us telling what it means to, what does it mean to me? How am I affected by reading Karen's book? How am I affected by watching Schindler's List? What is that? How has that changed me as a person? And that's how we're going to have to do this going forward. Because if it's just history, it's dry, it's dry. And it's, it's like talking about the crusades, honestly. Like when I think about the crusades and, and the numbers of Jews that were murdered along the way, there were horrible pogroms by the Christians as they were heading towards the Holy Land. They were, they just went along every city and took the Jews and killed them. Uh, but I don't have, I don't have that. Re- I don't have the same visceral, emotional, personal reaction to what happened to people that I, you know, a thousand years ago that had a terrible thing happen to them. Cause I haven't heard those stories from anybody. Yeah. I, I'd agree with your readers. I mean, those were definitely some of my favorite parts of the book too. Like those were, you know, but that's why I asked about them. Yeah. So I have two last questions for you. Uh, as somebody who has written about arguably, you know, one of the most, if not the most tragic event in history. Uh, when you've seen what has happened here in the U.S. over the last three to four years and, you know, seen how polarized we have become, do you have a fear that history could repeat itself? Absolutely. When I see the way that, um, when I, so, so what happened in Nazi Germany, there were a lot of things that happened that, that, that allowed for the murder of, you know, these human beings who were not doing anything to anybody, honestly, they were just living their lives. Um, uh, some of the things that led to it, that allowed it to happen were the repeating of propaganda lies in propaganda and saying things over and over again. And so when you see that lies can be, if they are shared widely enough and repeated often enough, they become the truth for the people that are hearing them. I mean, I don't, I don't know your politics, but when there's so many examples, but one that jumps to my mind immediately because it's so upsetting is just saying that there was fraud in the, in the, in the 2020 election and that Joe Biden didn't win and really Donald Trump won and that Donald Trump and his political group have just said this over and over again. And I keep thinking to myself, why are people listening to this? I don't get it. It's because when you say it over and over again as fact, it becomes truth. And you believe it, honestly, like you believe it in your soul. So like the German people throughout the 1930s, as they were told over and over again and shown by example that 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 the Jews are are terrible and shouldn't be in school with you and they shouldn't swim in your swimming pool and they shouldn't be citizens and you shouldn't marry them and they're not like us, they're the other. It's a this whole othering business that is we've seen throughout history. And when people become another and lies become truth, it can lead to to mass murder. It can lead to really, really awful behavior among human beings who think they're doing a good thing. 
many, many Germans thought they were doing a really good thing by, by getting rid of, and I put that in quotation marks, because that's the language they used, by getting rid of the horrible Jews who, because if we don't get rid of the horrible Jews, they're going to come at us. It's really a defensive mechanism is how the Nazis propaganda played it. You have to get rid of, like you would want to, like you wouldn't want cockroaches in your house, right? You have to get rid of those because that's a danger to your family. Cockroaches running around, they're dirty, they can bring disease. And so you have to kill them. You have to get rid of them. And so that was the way that it was portrayed. Jews were in fact portrayed as as insects and animals and rats and, you know, anything that was dirty that would spread like disease and, 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 and death, honestly. So when you look at the propaganda that we've lived through over the last four years, where lies become truth and believed truth by, by millions of people, it's a terrifying, it's terrifying. I'm not saying that like the Jews in the United States are going to be killed. It doesn't have to be Jews. It can be pick any, any group. It could be immigrants. It can be mm-hmm. Muslims. Remember when we had the whole ban on Muslims coming to this country? What was yeah. that about exactly? That was just othering. That was creating false reality and getting people to believe it and fear another person, another type of person. And if that's the way that people, be, and, and Hitler did this whole thing to stay in power and to take complete power, complete control. And when you have someone who wants complete control and is willing to to use lies and propaganda very effectively, and especially with social media now, it's times twenty million than what what Hitler had in the day. All he had was the radio and the and the the movies. He had the radio, the movies, movie. Like when you go to a movie, they would show propagandas in the beginning, and then of course the the media, the written media. But now the the danger is much more much more intense because of the social media, how easy it is to, to spread around lies and get them believed. So yeah, I am very worried for humanity uh, on so many levels. Hmm. Well, um, I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? What makes someone unmistakable? Yeah. What do you mean by unmistakable? Well, considering I've written a book about it, I've had to define it for myself. Um, okay, so let's hear. As what nobody else could do in the way that you do it. Ah, I see. Okay. So now ask the question again. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think what makes something or someone unmistakable is the fact that each, each of us as human beings are unique. And uh, that's actually part of part of my religious belief, which is that each human is created, as we learn in, in Genesis, created in the image of God. And each person that is brought into the world is their own unique person. No one else can be that person. And no one else has the talents and blessings of that one person. And so each person, the goal of each person to be that unmistakable person is to find that that thing that makes you the person that you want to be. Because we could all decide to be, we could try to be this person or that person, but what is it in, you have to go inside of you and find what it is about you that, that makes you, your presence in this world, a remarkable thing. And what is it that you want to leave behind when you're gone? And I think that 
if we can focus on the meaning of our existence, then it will come naturally as to what, what we do that leaves an imprint on others and how we behave, um, hopefully for the good. And it's a choice. One thing I learned by writing this book is that we all have within ourselves abilities to be good and kind, but also very strong abilities to be evil and bad. And it, and it's a choice and we have to choose. Are we going to allow that part of ourselves of the goodness and the kindness to, to express or the bad and the evil to express? And it, I do believe it's a choice. And I think that when we make that choice, that's where we make our mark. And that's where we become um, the people who we, who we can be. Beautiful. Um, well, I can't think of a more fitting way to finish our conversation. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Uh, where can people find out more about you, uh, your book, your work, and everything that you're up to? Well, thank you for thank you for the opportunity. This was really you, it was a great a, a great time to 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 speak about these very important issues. Um, to find me, I have a a website, KarenTriger.com. Um, it's got all kinds of stuff on it. You can browse it around. The book, of course, is um, can be purchased on Amazon. Uh, it's in it's in paperback, Kindle, and on Audible. And I will highly recommend the Audible version. the The reader of the book is this phenomenal actor who did a really great job with accents and she worked really hard to get it all right. She did great. Um, and there's a bonus prize in there, which is that m- my husband and myself and our kids sing a song in the middle of the audiobook that we sang to the Stish family as a thank you song that my husband wrote, um, composed, um, for, to say thank you to them. It's really great. So, um, that's, that's my website is one way. Uh, the book of, of course itself. I also have a blog, which you can find actually on the website, which I um, have written a lot. That blog, I try to keep mostly Holocaust centered or San Sam and Esther centered. Um, but I've also started a project called gratitude in a minute, which is a 60 second flash briefing podcast. So it's 60 seconds a day of Karen talking about something that I feel grateful for. Cause like when I said that moment in time, when I, like, I really took gratitude, I, I focused on gratitude and how to bring that into my life more. And um, so about, I don't know, about 460 days ago, I started a podcast, a daily podcast. Um, and it's, you can get it on Alexa. It's meant to be a flash briefing on Alexa, uh, but you can, so you can get, if you have Alexa, you can ask Alaska for it, Alexa for it, but um, it's also on any podcast provider, the, the usual, the usual ones that, that people have. So it's called gratitude in a minute. And it's a 60 second a day, um, idea that I share with people. So those are basically my basic projects right now. Right now I'm working, I'm doing research. I'm researching my own family. I decided to, to shift this to a, um, to my side of the family and I'm, I'm researching and writing a book about, about my family, but that's, uh, that's, a I'm not, not done yet I'm in the middle. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the unmistakable creative podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. 
head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.